Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to votevets.org. We've been adding, you know, half a million jobs a month. With the pandemic, we've gotten almost 70% of the population vaccinated and cases are going down. That doesn't just happen. That happens because the government went to work through a whole of government approach to attack this problem. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today is Chris Marr. He currently serves as Deputy White House Press Secretary, but began his career in local journalism. He's worked on a number of Democratic staffs and campaigns, including as National Press Secretary for Pete Buttigieg. Chris, it's great to have you on Burn the Boats. I always know when I'm uh, interviewing a communications pro because they ask in advance for a preview of what we we might be talking about. And, and more importantly, uh, they, you, have key points you want to get across. So let's start with that. The Biden infrastructure plan. Why is that right now the overriding priority of this administration? Yeah, that's a good question. We're having this conversation at a, a pretty uh, interesting time. Um, the Senate Democrats just announced the framework for uh, the reconciliation track of the Build Back Better agenda, which is great news. Um, but combined with the bipartisan infrastructure framework uh, that we came to an agreement with, with 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats a couple weeks ago, we're just in a place where we're going to be able to make a, a big step forward in getting this agenda passed. We're talking about connecting every American to high-speed internet. We're talking about getting rid of lead pipes that children and families drink out of. We're talking about making critical progress on the climate crisis, which includes making the largest investment in EV infrastructure in our nation's history climate resilience, clean power infrastructure, and jobs. Um, This is going to be a job-creating package and the next step in terms of building our economy back. So we're excited about where we are. We have a lot of work left to do over the next few weeks, but uh, we're headed in the right direction. How difficult has it been making the case to skeptics especially, say those who are willing to give you the benefit of the doubt, but, you know, might raise an eyebrow when you include in in an infrastructure package things like internet or EV infrastructure or replacement of lead pipes. Have you been able to make the case? I think that we have, you know, and I think when we're talking about uh, 
these two kind of dual track packages that are making their way uh, through the legislative process, we're talking about things that are broadly popular with the American people. And I think that's something that people inside the Beltway forget sometimes. We're talking about home care for older Americans. We're talking about helping families afford childcare, especially during a pandemic. We had children who don't have access to high-speed internet who are trying to learn. Um, you know, the president went to Louisiana a couple months ago. This stat has just always stuck with me from that visit. And over 60% of the population in Louisiana only has access to one internet service provider who offers minimum standard internet. So they just don't have an option. They have to drive somewhere to send an email. And that's just unacceptable. It's unacceptable for people trying to do their jobs. It's unacceptable for kids trying to learn in school. And so we're really connecting every American in broadband. So yeah, you know, are we talking about more than just roads and bridges, which I don't think anybody would argue uh, needs investment, but we're also talking beyond that because it's an important part of our nation's infrastructure. Well, there's a lot in it that is very popular with the public, but we both know that just because something is popular does not mean uh, it's going to pass. Um, and how do uh, what are you coming up against in uh, in Congress with an evenly split Senate that uh, on one side does not seem to care a whit about what the majority of Americans want? They just want to score the the right kind of political points with an increasingly radicalized base. Yeah, I mean. The president's been traveling the country, making the case for this bipartisan framework. Um, it would be the biggest investment in our roads and bridges since the creation of the interstate highway system. And we just need to continue to tout the agenda, to explain to families the, the benefits that they're going to see as a result of getting uh, both these packages passed and um, to continue to negotiate and have that conversation with senators and members of Congress, but there's no question, you know, this is a very complex process. There's going to be a lot of back and forth. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs, but the bottom line is the president looks forward to continuing to make the case for each of these packages and, and then signing both of them. It's one thing to have that back and forth and those ups and downs as, as you describe them, but it's a another thing altogether to have an opposition that is not acting in good faith. And, and while the president and you are out there touting the merits of, of a piece of legislation like this, in the Senate, you have uh, the Republican leader saying, and this is a direct quote, 100% of my focus is on stopping this new administration. How do you work with that? Yeah, well, you know, the president won election because uh, people wanted more out of their elected officials and he ran on uniting the country. And I think, you know, a big part of his argument is, is to show the American people that their government can work for them. And so that's what he's been focused on from day one. And we've had, you know, a fair amount of bipartisan success uh, over the first six months, obviously not as much as maybe we would have wanted, but that doesn't mean that the president's going to stop trying. And he's working through uh, 
the Build Back Better agenda now with members on the Hill. And, you know, we have been able to come to an agreement on the infrastructure package with a group of senators. Um, and there's still details to be worked out, but, you know, that conversation is ongoing. Uh, Senator Portman, one of the Republican leaders uh, who's been negotiating on this bill, said last week that people want to see their infrastructure improve. It's very popular because it's something people know is needed. And so we just need to be having that conversation uh, with members on the Hill. We need to be having that conversation with American people. We need to be hearing from our local and state elected officials. You know, 370 mayors, bipartisan group of mayors, signed on to a letter yesterday announcing their support. You know, they understand what this means in their communities on the ground and their elected officials here in Washington need to hear from them. And that's exactly what they're doing. So it's a coalition of labor groups. It's a coalition of business groups, the chamber of commerce, you know, uh, generally a more conservative group, uh, the business Roundtable, AFL CIO, they've all announced uh, their backing of the bipartisan infrastructure plan and, we just need to to continue to press forward and and make sure that people understand that uh, this can be a bipartisan win that helps the American people. So it's messy and it can be slow and it can be frustrating and there can be a lot of ups and downs, but we're committed to to seeing this through. I love how you talk about a conversation with the American people because I would argue that even more significant than the policy shifts that we have seen with the new administration is the tonal shift uh, and just the the change in attitude and outlook and the way the media engages with the American public, conversations like the one we're having right now. Is that palpable from where you sit? Are people aware of how much repairing has needed to happen uh, after the last four years? Yeah, I mean, like I sort of mentioned earlier, you know, uh, the president wants to show the American people that their government can work for them and that their government can come together, can do hard things and can get stuff done for the benefit of the American people. And we obviously came into office at a very tough time, uh, both economically and uh, in dealing with the pandemic. And I think that we've shown since day one that we're taking both of those crises seriously and that we've had a lot of tremendous success since then in turning both around. We've been adding uh, an average of, you know, half a million jobs a month uh, since Joe Biden took office. With the pandemic, we've gotten almost 70% of the population vaccinated and cases are going down, hospitalizations are down 90%, deaths are 90, down 90%. That doesn't just happen. That happens because the government went to work to uh, through a whole of government approach to attack this problem and to go after it. And I think, you know, bit by bit, you build that trust with the American people and you show the American people that, yes, your government can be doing good things uh, on your behalf and the blood pressure starts to drop a little bit. You know, they're not waking up in the middle of the night wondering uh, if they need to check Twitter. You know, there's been a little bit more structure and stability brought back. And I think that was important to demonstrate right out of the gate. 
I don't know whose idea it was, but there is a share your story button on the Build Back Better website. I think that's fantastic. I imagine you're getting a lot out of that. Well, you know, I don't know if it's the same thing, but, um, you know, our digital team has traveled the country to tell some of the stories about how, you know, people could potentially be impacted by the the infrastructure deal. And one of the stories that really stuck out to me was a woman in Kentucky who pays a hundred dollars a month for quote unquote high speed internet that doesn't work multiple days a week. And so she has to drive 45 minutes to a spot where she can get reception on her phone. She like pulls over to the side of the highway and depending on which way the wind's blowing, you know, she might be able to send her email or she'll continue on to a friend's house to be able to do the work that she needs to do. And then she turns around and drives home and that's two hours or an hour and a half of time to send one or two emails. And that's lost productivity time. That's, you know, lost work time. That's lost time with the family. And it's just something that a huge swath of the country has to worry about every single day that people here in Washington take for granted, you know? So it really does hit people uh, in a different way when you see and hear these personal stories that people tell. I'm making a few assumptions with, with this framing, but I have to imagine that, that a lot of the beneficiaries, perhaps I'm going to just say a majority of the beneficiaries of things like investment in, in high speed uh, access um, and, and other basic infrastructure are not in deep blue areas. You know, we're talking more rural America, places that have, have been underinvested in. Does that ever factor into to your messaging and how you try to sell, if you will, what you are, what you're trying to achieve? Well, honestly, one of the things that the president came into office uh, working to do was to bring equity into everything that, you know, every decision that's made, every executive order that's signed, every policy that's considered. And, you know, that means racial equity, that means gender equity, um, that means equity based on where you live, you know, and there's no reason uh, why an American living in rural Montana shouldn't have the same access and opportunity uh, via the internet as somebody in a more urban area, you know, there's no reason why kids who live in a large metropolis with an old pipe system should have to drink poison water that can impact them for life. You know, I was at the department of transportation for only a month, but one of the things that struck me was just the way that we designs our, we design our highways a lot of times, you know, can completely cut people off from opportunity if they don't have a car because a bus can't access certain neighborhoods or, you know, bus routes or, or a highway being built through a neighborhood or, um, or whatever the case may be. Just, just thinking about the impact holistically on people and thinking about that access to opportunity and building equity into everything that we're doing has been a priority of this administration and will continue to be. And it impacts rural people just as much as, as urban people and, and in a variety of ways. Well, when it comes to that hard infrastructure, I think 
Secretary Buttigieg made some attempts to address the historical legacies. He got into a bit of trouble, but he was right for talking about the way racism factored into how our highway system was built, intentionally dividing communities and things like that. Um, I would imagine you were part of that early messaging. Yeah, well, like like I was saying, you know, I think it was something that I had never really considered or understood before I worked at the Department of Transportation, but the design of our highway system in some cases completely destroyed neighborhoods and in other cases maybe didn't destroy neighborhoods but completely cut them off from access and opportunity and and sort of isolated them and i think the secretary has been intentional about identifying those places and and seeing what can be done to reverse course or at least make sure that that doesn't happen in the future so it was great to be a part of his team and be part of sort of kicking off uh, that equity sort of tentpole that is woven throughout everything that they do. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. What was it like? Because you were on Team Pete for quite a while, one of the first. Uh, what was it like crafting communications for arguably one of the best political communicators that has uh, that has ever <laughs> taken the stage. Uh, I imagined you learned as much from him <laughs> as you gave. Yeah, no, that's certainly the case. He, he uh, makes his comms folks look good for sure. He's, you know, obviously very smart and very talented and very good at what he does. And, 
very, you know, he, you don't always see it because he's so even killed, but he really does care and have a passion for wanting to make people's lives better, you know, and, and a, a true public servant. And it was a lot of fun working on his campaign. We had a, a good run. You know, there's a reason why he went from the mayor of the fourth largest city in Indiana to the transportation secretary. And that's because he's not only very smart and intelligent, but he's a good communicator and he can relay ideas very effectively. And he cares. He cares, like I said, about improving people's lives. And, uh, you know, DOT is a pretty good uh, fit for somebody who likes to kind of dig into the details and try to find solutions and then uh, also find a way to make that accessible to the American people and in a way that they understand. And that really hits home for them. So I think he's found a, a pretty good spot here in the administration. One of the things that distinguished him as a candidate and continues to distinguish him as a cabinet secretary is his willingness to meet uh, those constituents where they are. And Pete doesn't shy away from going on Fox, from going into what others might consider, you know, enemy territory and making the case. Has that sensibility caught on at all? Are there others in the administration who are looking at that and saying, you know what, we we actually can make a play for these viewers. We can win some hearts and minds that others might have written off. Yeah, I think you have to understand that you can't always just talk with people who agree with you on something. And that even if you don't agree on some things, you have to sort of seek out that common bond and that common solution, right? And I think that's something that this president understands from his time in the Senate and just uh, his commitment to helping unite the country after the last four years. And, you know, it starts with leadership and compassion and empathy. And, you know, I think one good example of just sort of the way that you're communicating and and the audiences that you're reaching um, and thinking sort of beyond just talking to people who agree with you or who you understand is, you know, in this sort of continued effort to get people vaccinated. You know, um, like I said earlier, we've reached about 70% across the country um, in terms of people vaccinated, but there's still, you know, many people out there who have not. And sometimes I think this White House understands that it's not always going to be an elected official who's the best messenger for why getting a vaccination is important. You know, people might not want to listen to to me or to President Biden or to, you know, Pete Buttigieg, just to other members of the administration who talk about the importance of getting vaccinated. And so it's identifying those messengers to carry that message, right? And so for some people, it might be their doctor. I think there's studies out there that show that people trust their doctor more than anyone almost. Well, you're, you're painting an optimistic picture of <laughs> White House comms and how to get your message across. But isn't it fair to say that something has fundamentally shifted even since your days as a as a local reporter with just how stovepiped media has become? I mean, you're talking about vaccinations and I'll come back at 
you with the the stat that, you know, Dems are roughly twice as likely to get vaccinated than Republicans. I mean, it is basic questions of science are now breaking down along partisan lines because of where people get their news. How do you think about that? It's important to recognize that, right? It's important to recognize that no matter how hard you try, no matter how big an effort you make, people just might not want to listen to you. And I mean, to continue on with the vaccination side of things, you know, like that's why we're engaging pastors. That's why we're engaging doctors and pharmacists and, uh, you know, uh, people on TikTok and and performers and whatever the case may be, you know, Um, and that's not going to, there are going to be people who just fundamentally are opposed to it and it's not going to happen, you know, but um, and there's been a lot of news about the slowdown of vaccinations, right? But the fact is we vaccinated three and a half million people across the country last week. That's three and a half million more people who are protected and are protecting others because they got vaccinated. So it's a grind and we're still going at it. I mean, I think in terms of where people get their news, yeah, that has changed and and developed. And that's why it's incumbent on us to think creatively about how we can reach different audiences. I think it's important for us to have a message of truth and transparency. That's not to say that overnight somebody's going to flip a switch and decide that, you know, they agree with everything that they say. But I think it begins with at least bringing trust and honesty uh, and decency to a place uh, where people expect it out of their leaders, you know, and there's not a a simple answer, but I think it starts with at least setting that example and and recognizing it. That example is certainly important to set at the top, but I want to ask you, given your, your roots in local journalism. Uh, you, you were a reporter for six years in, in Santa Barbara at the Santa Barbara Independent. I want to get your take on what uh, a recent guest of ours, Ann Nelson, called the colony collapse of local journalism, where, frankly, most of the policies that impact people's daily lives are talked about and implemented. And just the evisceration of of local newspapers, reporting staffs, and state houses and city councils has, um, I mean, it's just been dramatic. Uh, yeah. I, I think Ann Nelson was talking about, you know, a decrease of one to two thirds in the span of a decade. What impact is that having on democratic accountability? Yeah, I mean, just as a former journalist, is hard to watch, you know? Even some of the newspapers that I worked for are, are just sort of shells of what they used to be. There's a lot of good reporters out there doing a lot of good work, but you know they're they're facing cuts um, and having to do more with less. You know, instead of just having one beat, they might have several beats. And not only you know are you writing the story, but you're taking video and you're taking photos and you got to tweet and so there, the the local newspaper environment is tough um, as people kind of try to figure out how to monetize uh, the work that they do and and help people understand the value of the work that they do and and that that costs money. But we understand 
uh, its importance and the need to invest in it. And so, um, you know, we're still having those conversations at a local level. Well, you have come an extraordinary long way from the Santa Barbara Independence Newsroom to the White House as, as Deputy White House Press Secretary. You're fairly new to the job and still drinking from the fire hose, but <laughs> what have some of the biggest surprises been? Yeah, it's, you know, it's never a dull moment around here. Uh, there's really no days off in terms of news being made and stories being told and things going on, you know, um, we're keeping really busy. There's a lot of just moments where it kind of hits you, you know, the, the gravity of the work that you're doing and the highly intelligent and qualified and experienced people that you're kind of surrounded by and the brilliant minds that are taking on some of the biggest challenges and looking out the window and, and seeing the white house every day, it definitely sort of just instills in you this pride, you know, um, that you're working on really important policy issues that are, uh, with the goal of making this country a better place for everybody, you know, and making, uh, our communities more equitable for everyone and, and helping, you know, uh, the country move on from this pandemic and build back our economy and just so many issues that people are, are facing and you get to be a part of trying to help make lives better, you know? So it's a lot of work. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's challenging. It's interesting. And there's a lot of really good people inside this building trying to make a difference. And it's just really cool to be a part of it. I heard you slip in, build back into that answer. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing. I always try to stay on message. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about that because you do the job really well. Does it ever frustrate you? Have you ever, uh, and I know you're not going to share an actual moment uh, or with any specificity, but have you ever encountered a conflict between what you thought the priority should be or what your personal feelings were and the larger mission? I mean, there have got to be days where you're like, man, I just, I want to talk about baseball or something besides, <laughs> uh, besides infrastructure. Uh, is staying on message ever a grind? You know, uh, <laughs> the fun and interesting, but also like the most challenging part of the job is you never know what's going to pop up, you know, and you could have the best laid intentions for the day and, you know, some crisis will pop up and you just have to deal with it. And that's part of the job. You know, I feel really lucky and, and blessed to work for an administration and a president who really just cares about people and is here to do the right things and to get things done and to help, you know, improve people's lives. And he likes to, well, I, I guess I would say I've worked for several principals, you know, president Biden, uh, Pete Buttigieg, Lowe's caps, um, John Tester, you know, no two people are going to see everything the exact same way all the time. But I think that shared values and a shared mission to do the right thing and to make a difference in people's lives and to be doing it for the right reason, that's what's most important to me. 
and, you know, we can have disagreements and we can have conversations and we can, you know, work through complicated policies and people are here to do the right thing. And I feel really lucky that I've gotten to work for people who I really do see the world similarly to, and we're all here to work together for a common reason to, to move our country in the right direction, you know, and you never have to question a person's motive here and, and you know that they're here for the right reason. So it's a cool place to be a part of for sure. Well, Chris, it's been great having you on Burn the Boats. We end every episode with the same question. What is the bravest decision you've ever been a part of? Boy, that's a good question. Um, You know, one that always stands out is um, when I worked for Senator Tester um, on his campaign, he had a really tough um, re-election. President Trump visited Montana four or five times to try to take him out and kind of endlessly gave him a hard time in an effort to defeat him um, in a in a state that Donald Trump won two years prior by by over 20 points. And so we just had a real battle during that campaign. And, you know, on more than one occasion, I remember sitting with Senator Tester and just talking through certain decisions, you know, that were being made and, and kind of the ramifications of those decisions. You know, he voted at one point to shut down the government because there wasn't enough funding for Montana's hospitals. He voted against Brett Kavanaugh, even though we saw a change of eight points in our polling basically overnight (laughs) when he, uh, when he took that vote. And like, during those discussions, you know, where you're kind of contemplating like the politics behind some of the decisions that he has to make, he always just landed at, you know, I got to do the right thing here. And if it ends up costing my job, so be it. I'll go back to being a farmer full time. But the people sent me here to make these tough decisions and to do the right thing. And that's what I'm going to do. You know, you sit there and on one side, you're a staffer and you're like, okay, well, this is going to make life a little rough and we're going to have to buckle down and get to work. But on the other side of things, you just sit there kind of relieved and in awe that like at the end of the day, doing the right thing was what mattered to this guy and not getting reelected and not the, the power or the position or the politics. It was doing the right thing. I always just felt a tremendous sense of pride a that I got to, to sit in on those conversations in the first place, but then B just to see in action, him weigh these tough decisions and, and leave them doing the right thing because it was the right thing to do, not because politics told him it was the right thing to do. So it's not a personal brave decision, but a brave decision, I guess that I was a part of and got to see firsthand for sure. Well, it's a, an increasingly rare quality, unfortunately. Agreed. Um, Chris, it's been awesome having you. We'll have you back. Uh, get back to work. All right. That sounds good. Thanks, Ken. Thanks again to Chris for joining me. You can find him on Twitter at, at ChrisMar46. 
Next time on Burn the Boats, I'm talking with Chris Goldsmith, an Army combat vet whose story changed the way the Department of Defense treats PTSD. If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rule-Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting, and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.